There's a, a theory, I think, it, I think it could be called a theory, um, an, an idea called the butterfly effect. And it's the idea that if something happens perhaps somewhere else in the world, it can have repercussions. So the, I know that when it was first explained to me, uh, it's the idea that literally a butterfly could flap his wings in the Caribbean and then on the other side of the world it would cause a, a, torne- a hurricane or a typhoon or something. And I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but it does bring something interesting in there. It's this idea of uh, how there, little things can control bigger things. If, if you have not yet figured out that you are not necessarily in control of everything around you, I just remind you that 2020 just occurred. Uh, if there was ever a time where we felt out of control, that would be it. Um, you were, it was funny, a lot of people were saying what they were doing. In fact, I have a, a friend of mine on social media and he said something really funny. He said, you know, I'm not saying I caused it, but I was playing some pickup basketball this time last year. I went seven for 10 from behind the, the three-point line and then all of a sudden the country gets shut down. Apparently they couldn't handle my game. <laughs> I don't think that's really how it happened uh, as much as I would love for him to take credit for it. But it's just that idea that this time last year we were all doing things and then you heard about this thing here and there, this, this virus or whatever. And then all of a sudden it was out of our control. I mean, we were shut down. There was no one in this building this time last year, I don't think. It was about four of us which was, I mean, this is really full compared to what it was a year ago. Um, And a lot of you are away on vacation, but it's just that idea that we have this sense of control, but it's not always there, is it? You ever think, and hopefully this isn't going to be, hopefully this is a good think, not a bad think, Uh, but the idea of driving down the road, right? You're going down the road, say you're on 281 or, or somewhere, you're going a good 65 miles an hour, because that's a speed limit, not because the speed limit's 55, but you're going a good 65 miles an hour, the car in the other lane is coming at you 65 miles an hour as well. Now, you are a decent driver. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to assume that out of everyone in this room, that you are a decent driver. You're not going to intentionally turn left, right? You're not going to hit oncoming traffic. You're going to try to hold that wheel and stay in your lane, but you can't control that other person. You can't control the deer that might jump out. You can't control the incredibly scary spider that might pop out of your dashboard or snake or whatever, whatever horror story comes up in your mind. But there are so many things that are out of our control. Now, if you're a control freak, I've already ruined this morning for you. I'm sorry. But the fact of the matter is is that it's kind of this idea that the the big idea for today, the the title for today, is the paradox of control. Because in one sense, and we talked about this a little bit last week, and so we're going to be kind of picking up where we left off last week, but in one sense, we do very much have control. It's this odd kind of dichotomy that God has created where, yes, we do have control, and yet where it's really weird is, We don't really have control. He gives us control. It's the idea of predestination versus free will. That idea where we choose him, but he chose us, and we're not going to get into all that this morning. But clearly, the Bible talks about how we are in control of some things. I can control whether or not I sin. God is not forcing me to sin. And yet, in the same sense, 
God. God's in control. If he wants me to all of a sudden just cease to exist, then I will simply cease to exist. But we have control, but we don't have control. And I think the main idea that's in your notes this morning is that our perception of control isn't complete simply because we're not God. That's it. What happens is we get so focused on being in control and yet we can't possibly be in control because we're not God. We can't alter things the way that we think we can. We think we have control, but we're really not. So what I want to do is I want to jump ahead, just jump right into 1 Samuel chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I will warn you, we're going to be jumping, not jumping around a lot, but there's certain sections that we won't be spending quite as much time and we'll be moving over some sections, not because those sections of the Bible are not important, but this is my last time for preaching for a little while, so we're going to do the rest of the book today. I'm just kidding. You should have seen all your faces. <laughs> a company like, oh man. No, we're, we're not going to finish the book today. Uh, but, but we are going to jump through some passages a little bit faster and not look at everything quite as carefully as normally as, as we would. But let's start with some, let's start with 1 Samuel chapter 9, right in the beginning. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. This is how it starts, starts out. There was a man of Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorah, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul. Why couldn't they all just name their kids simple names? I don't know. A handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's fathers, was, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take, out, take one of the young men with you and rise and go look for the donkeys. So we've got a little bit of history here about Saul. We, we've been told, we looked at it last week, that the people were clamoring for this new leader. We want to be like all the other nations. We want a, a man to rule over us. We no longer want God to be the one in full control. And here's where the paradox of control comes in. This is where we begin to see this kind of butterfly effect through Scripture. And, and so let's just look at the history. First of all, we know that Saul comes from a good line. This is kind of weird because we're kind of jumping ahead and jumping back. Some of you know the story, Saul will become the first king. If you didn't, sorry, that's a spoiler alert. Uh, well, it's not an alert because I'm telling you after I already spoiled it. That was a spoiler, sorry. But we know that he comes from a good line. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. That was kind of one that was often held up in higher regard. We know that he comes from a good, wealthy family, a powerful kind of family, it's really, what I find really interesting, and maybe this is just, I don't know, my curiosity or whatever, but it literally says in verse 2, there was not a man among Israel more handsome than him. I don't know how that was determined. You know what I mean? Like, they had a Mr. Israel pageant, and he won every year. I don't know what's going on, but for some reason, the, whoever was writing this, we know it wasn't Samuel, because this records Samuel's death, and so we know it wasn't Samuel, but regardless of what it is, this is, this is what's going on, and this is how he's described. He is described as the most handsome man in all of Israel, which is weird because we get that in fairy tales, right? There is no one more beautiful in all the land than Snow White. Or Here it's a dude. This is different. Like, here we go, guys. We finally got it. Now, granted, you're not Saul, so this doesn't apply to you. But nonetheless, this is kind of interesting. 
This is what we're told about Saul. He comes from a good tribe. He comes from a wealthy family. There's no one more good-looking than this man. And then it goes on to say that he's a head and shoulders taller than everyone else. This was the man's king. He's a good-looking guy. All the girls wanted to date him. He was a tall guy. All the guys wanted to be like him. He had it going on. I mean, this was, this was the guy. He was the man. It's interesting. But his father loses some donkeys. In verses 3 to 14, we see this, this, this situation. I'm not going to read through those verses, verse by verse, but understand, let me give you kind of a, uh, a, a joke around, call it the JKV, the John Kelly version. Let me give you kind of a, a quick summary, perhaps, of what's going on. Basically, Kish, Saul's father, loses some donkeys. And so Kish, being the normal father that he is, says, hey, son, come here, <laughs> got a job for you. Go grab someone and find the donkeys for me. So they do. Well, what's interesting is that if, as you look at this passage, they, the travels that these two gentlemen take, Saul and this other man, are actually quite extensive. By some estimations, you could be looking at between 20 and 40 miles that these guys were just walking around looking for these donkeys. They couldn't seem to find them. They go through Ephraim, Shalashah, uh, Shalom, the entire land of Benjamin. They're just looking all over the place for this stuff. Can't find them. Finally, Saul says, hey, you know what we got to do? Here's the deal. Um, we should probably go back. Otherwise, my dad's going to be more worried about us than he is the donkeys. Which was also nice to know that Saul understood that his dad was probably more concerned about his son than a couple of donkeys. But nonetheless, they said, okay, well, that's a good idea. The servant says, you know what we ought to do, though? We're, we're, we're near where this man of God lives. We're right near his hometown. Maybe we should, why don't we just stop by and see him? Maybe he could tell us where the donkeys are. Saul thinks about it. He's like, that's, that's not a bad idea. It's kind of a good idea, this being Samuel. But Saul says, you know, here's the deal, though. When, when we do that, when you go to ask for advice from the man of God, from Samuel, it's typically very nice to give him some kind of a gift, whether monetary or otherwise. This wasn't something that Samuel was like, well, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll let you know where the donkeys are, but uh, I'm not sure I know where the donkeys are. Maybe Mr. Jackson would help me remember where the donkeys It's not one of those things. It's just kind of a common courtesy that, look, we're getting help from you. Um, we know that you're a man of God. You don't have traditionally the same kind of job as the rest of us, and so we are going to support you in this. Saul says that's kind of the problem. And the servant says, well, you know, I just, I just happen to have some money in my pocket. So you, you just happen to be right next to the hometown of this guy. You just happen to have some money in your pocket. And Saul says, all right, let's, let's do it. It's a good idea. Then, not only that, but when they get into the city, they're told, oh, he just arrived. In fact, if you get him right now, I'm sure you'll be able to talk to him because he just got back to the city. He was out, and, you know, it was getting late, and perhaps he was older. We were told that he was older by the Israelites uh, in a couple chapters before. And so if you get him at just the right time, this is perfect. Go for it. See, eventually you have to look at this kind of stuff, and you go, it just so happened that, and then it just so happened that. And See, here's the deal. If you were reading a novel and every chapter was like that, you'd kind of be looking at it going, what kind of novel is this? Like, this is how you're going to explain away everything? 
just so happened that they were near the town of Samuel. It just so happened that he had some money in his pocket. It just so happened that he arrived back in the town at just the right time. We'd be looking at it going, that's kind of a, it's kind of a boring book. Instead, we look at this and we go, it's not just so happened. It's that God is completely in control. What we're learning here in your notes, if you want to, we saw last week how Israel tried to remove God. But here's the deal, though. Even if we remove him from the equation, God is still sovereign. Removing God from the equation doesn't actually remove him. We, we think we have. We're like, all right, I've, I've got this. I, I can do this. I'll be fine. And God says, no, you don't understand. You've removed me, but it's not up to you to remove me. I, I, I remove myself when I want to be removed. And to be honest, I don't want to be removed from your life. And because I created and continue to sustain the universe, I'm going to stay right where I am. You don't have a choice. Oh, no, no, I finally, I, I, I took care of that and I made sure everything worked out. And God's going, no, you didn't. I did. You thought you did. But I'm in control still. What it gives us is a false sense of control. It's a false sense because we're never truly in control. And I think it also gives us a false sense because what we want isn't really control of the situation. I think deep down, especially when it comes to big issues like this, what we really want, stay with me here, what we really want is to become like God. What we want is complete control of our lives. We don't want anything else other than ourselves to determine our outcome because we think we know what's best for ourselves. The reason I think that's actually the issue here is because when we go back to the original sin of Adam and Eve, what was it that Eve was convinced that they needed to have? It was the knowledge of good and evil. It was the desire to become more like God. I think that's still what plagues us today. The original sin was wanting to be something we weren't created to be. We weren't created to make everything under our control like God. Simply because we're not powerful enough, we're definitely not perfect enough. Simply put, we're not God enough to be in the control that we think we want. We have no business wanting to be in control because like Jack Nicholson in a famous movie, you can't handle the control. We want it, but we couldn't possibly handle it. We're looking to remove God from the equation because we think we know better, and and in that moment, we could do a better job than God. So Israel finally has their way. They're getting a king they don't realize is that God is still constantly looking out for them. These things that seem like coincidences, these things that seem like confusion are nothing, absolutely nothing for God. If you want to jump ahead, you can jump ahead to chapter 10, Verses 27 through 25, or 17 rather, through 25, we're going to be talking about this a little bit as well, and it's very interesting. We're going to be jumping back and forth a little bit, but what's interesting is that Saul reminds uh, uh, Israel, he brings the people together in chapter 10, verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. 
and I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you've rejected God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses and you've said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. We look at things like this and we go, okay, God's preparing them. He wants to remind them of what's going on. But what's really interesting is that even before all this, let me jump back, I I got ahead of myself here. Even before all this, you've got God telling Saul, or Samuel rather, exactly what's going on. So Saul goes into this town and, 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 he, and he finds his way in and he's, he's, he's looking for Samuel and he finds Samuel and it's like, oh, this, this all worked out. He's going to tell me where I am. But the amazing thing is that the, it says, it kind of jumps back and it says, but the day before the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, tomorrow, uh, around this time, I'm going to reveal to you this man. He's going to be from the tribe of Benjamin. And this is the guy that you're going to anoint over my people. So this seemingly weird series of coincidences that God has set into motion, these donkeys, this certain man who would lose these certain amount of donkeys, this guy who would be sent with another man to look for the donkeys, and God says, no, this is how I planned it out, calling it 24 hours out. So after this, they meet. Saul is anointed by Samuel, and this is where we pick up. Samuel reminds Israel they've rejected God. He's the one that's brought you out of Egypt. He's the one that's led you away from the oppressors, but you still want a king. So, all right, you've seen what they do. In all of history, there has never been a perfect king like God. But okay, let's do this. Present yourselves to him. All right, this is it. Let's do it. So he brings out in verse 20 of chapter 10, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. It's not capitalized. We're not talking about Lot. He's been God. But by Lot. There's some speculation as to how this is exactly done. Some, of the, some believe it was literally a, a, a dice roll of some type. Some of them believe it was choosing a short straw, whatever the case may be. But it was that idea that it was chosen by chance. The ironic thing, I, I think I'm using that term in the right way, the ironic thing about choosing things by lots, the Israelites did this when they were trying to determine God's will for something. Are you sticking with me on this? So they're rejecting God, but in order to figure out who the next king is, how are they choosing it? By supposedly inviting God into the process. See how this is weird? They're not in control. God's in control. So this is what they do. Benjamin was taken by casting lots. All right, out of the 12 tribes. It's going to be a man from Benjamin. All right, let's keep casting lots. We'll see what happens. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. So then they got the tribe of Benjamin. Bring all the men of the tribe of Benjamin. All right, now let's cast lots for which tribe or which clan in the tribe of Benjamin. It's the Matrites. Okay. Narrowing it down. Again, going to God for instruction. Is that me? Am I doing that? It's in. It just doesn't like me. 
So they go down to the clan of Matrites, that was chosen. And then they went even further and they found out by, again, by choosing lots, that Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And here's where it gets interesting. But when they sought him, verse 21, he could not be found. They can't find him. They finally get to this point like, oh, finally we've got a king. We've been waiting for this. Has anybody seen Saul? Like we're choosing this guy. We finally have got him and this is, this is right where we've wanted to be. Where is he? And the amazing thing, and again, when they sought him, he could not be found. So what did they do in verse 22? So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? They don't want to remove God from control. They just want to remove him from this process, but they're not even removing him from this process. They have no idea what to do outside of God's control. They literally have no idea what they're doing, and so they turn to God for everything, but at the same time going, we want your advice to get us to a certain point, but once we're there, we're going to remove you. Kind of picture that petulant child that wants help with just one part of the puzzle. And as an adult, as a parent, perhaps, you look at that and you go, here's the deal, though. You, you, I, I know that if you're going to get help here, you're going to need help over here. And, and in about two minutes, you're going to call me, and I'm going to be in the other room. I don't want to have to come back, so let's just do this now. In your mind, you're thinking this through as an adult, but that child says, no, 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 that's all I needed. Kind of pushes you away. No, you don't understand. You're, you're not going to be ahead in the process like you think you are. Let me, let me help you out a little bit more. And that's what Israel's like. They finally, through divine intervention, decide who's going to be the next king. They can't even find him. And so they actually finally go back to God and say, God, where is this guy? We can't even find him. The solution, they ask God. They demand they choose a king, but then they can't find the king. So God tells them, look, this is, this is where your king is. Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. Sounds like a real willing individual. I can't wait to be king. This is not Simba making a song, I just can't wait to be king. This is a guy who, like Simba when he's older, says, I have no desire to be king. Well, you have to be king. I don't want to be king. Well, why don't you want to be king? Ah, it, just doesn't, yeah, it just doesn't interest me. It's a conflict of interest. And when they stood him among the people, he was taller than any other people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Verse 25, Then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. I love that. He says, All right, here's the deal. Don't forget. This is what the king, uh, just one more reminder, this is the control that the king is going to have. We're going to lay out the laws and everything for this so that at no point are you guys going to come back to Samuel or to God and say, hey, this isn't what we thought. No, 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 this is all written out. This is the contract that you made. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. I think it's interesting that throughout this entire passage, 
I think there are two, and these two final points we'll kind of get through quickly. But I think the second point as we look at this, as we're trying to live, don't mistake God's allowance for his favor. Just because God allows something to happen does not mean that that was what he really would have wanted for you. That is not the absolute best thing. God would have loved for you to have made a different choice. He's allowing you to make this choice. It's going to be a learning experience. It more than likely will be painful. I would have loved for you to have chosen this. Instead, you have chosen this. There are certain times where God takes us through difficult times and trials and tribulations, but there are also times where God says, hey, look, you could do this or you could do this. This is really the best option. Instead, you're choosing this. If you think back a couple weeks ago when Pastor Jay was talking about God's will and how we determine what God's will is, there are times where God literally says, I want you to move in this direction. I just want you to, like he said, go do something. I will open the doors for you, but start moving in a direction. But if we're moving in a direction that is obviously and consistently in a direction that is taking us away from God, that is when God says, hey, look, you're going to be allowed to do it. I'll go ahead and let you to do it. Go ahead and let you do it. But understand this, that is not what I really would want you to do. You are living in sin. You are doing something that is not what I would want you to do. It doesn't mean that God is just going to strike you down as soon as you do something that he doesn't want us to do because clearly all of us would be dead. But the fact of the matter is is that sometimes God's allowance, we look at that and we go, well, that's God's favor. God really just wants me to be happy. Obviously, because I found this person, I found this job, I found this opportunity, I found this, and God just wants me to be happy. And God says, no, I'm allowing you in this moment to find what you think is happiness and joy, but that's still not really what I want for you. And I think we mistake his allowance. Well, because it happened, God must be okay with it. Isn't it weird that Christians sometimes think that way? And yet we look around the world and we go, well, clearly stuff's happening all over the world that God is allowing, but it's not what he wanted. But for some reason we think, well, in our own lives, this is it. This is is what God wants. Don't mistake his allowance for his favor. The parent allows things to happen, but doesn't necessarily approve. For For every father out there that's got a daughter that's old enough to have started dating, You know exactly what I'm talking about. There's an allowance. It's not always favor. For those of you that have daughters that are too young still, you'll get it. But there's always a parent allows certain things because they know that the child needs to work through something in their mind. And so they allow something to happen not because they're some kind of sadistic parent and they want to see their child get hurt, but because you're, you're at that stage in life, whatever situation it might be, where you need to learn perhaps a little bit the hard way, we are still there, we love you, we know that you're doing something, but we still love you, and should you ever want our help again with this, I am here for you. Whether it is a child putting blocks into something, creating a puzzle, or whether it is an older child that is out of the house, regardless of what it is, sometimes the allowance is not the favor of the parent. And I think God is the same way 
with us. Sometimes we need to learn the hard way. Now, to kind of finalize it, if we were to jump ahead, we could look at any one of the next couple of chapters. Clearly, in chapter 11, we see that the Israelites, point three, are under the guidance of a loving and patient God. They're under the guidance of a loving and patient God because all of a sudden they start winning these battles. They start winning these wars specifically against the Philistines. So even though God is, they've tried to push him out of the picture, God says, no, I'm still here. I'm still a loving God. I'm still a generous God. I'm still going to work with you guys. In fact, I'm going to allow you guys to go ahead and win some of these battles and it's going to look like things are a lot better for you. I think today it still applies to us today. Even when we're not in God's favor, he still loves us. Even when we are that prodigal child for the Lord, he still is there with open arms, waiting for us, waiting, wanting to forgive. He is still pursuing us in, again, a paradoxical kind of way. His allowance does not necessarily mean his favor, but we are still under the guidance of a loving and patient God. Where in your life have you tried to remove God? Is there an aspect to a relationship, an aspect to uh, some kind of uh, issue that is going on in your life where as you look at it more and more, you've realized, I have not really included God in this decision-making. I have not really included God in how I want things to work out. Instead, I've kind of taken the reins, so to speak, tried to remove him, because for some reason, I think, I know a little bit better than God on this one. And for some reason, say, well, I would never actually say that. To which I would say, how much are you intentionally including God into your decision-making process? So, well, I don't dismiss God. Are you praying for his guidance and direction? Or are you just naturally assuming that God's going to take the reins and just do it for you? We worship a loving and patient God, and we're under his guidance, should we ever want. Sorry. It's just the emphasis of it all. My encouragement to you is that if for some reason the favor is maybe not being there right now, and you realize you're under God's allowance, but not under his favor, my encouragement to you would be, turn to the guidance of a loving and forgiving and patient God this week. Don't let it go on. If you haven't been including God in your decision-making process, start now. Don't go another moment without his input, without seeking what his will is. He's always willing to give us guidance because he is a loving and patient God. Father, we do thank you so much for being who you are, that loving, patient, unbelievably forgiving God, even when we do not deserve anything. What we deserve is your justice and wrath, and yet what you often give to us is your grace and mercy. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us so that we don't have to live under your justice and wrath but that we can be justified, we can be made right before you in your eyes through your son's sacrifice on the cross. Father, we pray that today that we would stop making decisions that are not based solely on you, 
that we would seek out your favor, not just your allowance, that we would look for your will in everything that we do and say, in your son's name, amen.